From the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, I'm your host, AANP President April Kapu, and this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to NP Pulse, AANP's official podcast bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on the issues that matter most to NPs and our patients. April is Minority Health Month, and today we're joined by acute care nurse practitioner and University of South Carolina College of Nursing assistant professor, Dr. Dwayne Aline, for an important conversation about ensuring health equity is top of mind throughout the year. We'll discuss specific minority health issues and why having a diverse healthcare workforce is essential to the provision of high quality patient care. Representation within the healthcare workforce saves lives. We'll cover the importance of workforce retention, especially among healthcare providers who are from historically underrepresented groups. Duane will also share his perspective on social determinants of health and ways inherent biases can affect decision making, especially in healthcare. Welcome to NP Pulse, Dr. Aline. It is so nice to have you here with us today. Yeah, glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It's an honor. Well, it's definitely my pleasure because I have wanted to have you on NP Pulse for a very long time. We've known each other for a very long time, and I would love to just jump into our content today, but first, I'd really love for our audience to get to know you a little bit better. So, Dwayne, tell us a little bit about how you became a nurse and a nurse practitioner. So, I have an interesting story, and I always tell this story several times. I have never wanted to be a nurse. (laughs) My mother was a nurse. And I actually initially, when I went to college, had the dream of becoming a medical doctor, so a physician. And when I went, I went to the school, went to the Michigan State University, got my bachelor's degree in physiology. My attempts to go and to get to medical school failed. So my mother came up to me and said, why don't you go to nursing school? I said, no, I can't. (laughs) I don't want to be a nurse. I know that's the last thing I want to be. I ended up being stuck in in, in a rut and I didn't want to just continue to go to school and not have any benefit from it. So my, my mother's friend who was a nurse at the time recommended I go to licensed practitioner nurse school because I was in a short time frame and this allowed a, a short admission time. So I had three months to apply. So I was able to apply went to a technical school in Long Island, New York. Mm-hmm. And that's the moment I fell in love with nursing. I started oh, okay. to see my development as a person and ability to take care of patients, critically think. So I definitely wanted to further my career. So I, while I was in working as a, a licensed practical nurse in a nursing home, I decided to return back to get my bachelor's. So I went to Delphi University in Garden City, New York. And shortly after I retained my bachelor's, I ended up in the Air Force. My first career started as a registered nurse in the Air Force. And there I worked in the clinic. And then I moved to um, Texas, San Antonio, Texas, and started my registered nursing career actually on the med-surg floor and surgical ICU 
uh, deployed as well. So I ended up look, getting some good experiences as in, in a battleground field. So that mm-hmm. was interesting. And then I ended up while I was in, in the Air Force, I started to think about further in my career. I remember when I was at LPN, I saw this guy, he's, he's dressed up in a long white coat when I read his coat and it did not say MD or DO, it said NP. I said, what's an NP? And I looked at that person, it was a, as a male. I said, one day that would be me working in a hospital. Uh, <laughs> so, yes. so I started looking to it and started deciding between acute care and family and decided to do acute care. When I got out of the Air Force, my first job, I started working in the ICU mm-hmm. um, in, in Columbia, South Carolina. And then during it, within six months, I applied to the acute care nurse practitioner program at the University of South Carolina. And that's that's when I started my journey as a nurse practitioner. So that's how I got there. And I love it. <laughs> I think it was the best decision I ever made. And it continues to get better each time I get more involved and advance my career. And that's how I got to know you because my background's in acute care and we were at a lot of the same events and educational forums. And I learned a lot from you. And I just wonder, what does your mom say now? She's, she's so proud. <laughs> <laughs> um, she's just saying, I'm g- glad that you did it. And then, you know, she's proud because I went further than she did, but she would talk about nursing this and this. You got it. I said, no, I can't. I, I won't survive as a nurse. It's not me. But now I'm at the highest level. I have a twin brother and he's a doctor in veterinary medicine and I'm a, I have a doctor in nursing practice. So both of us have achieved the highest levels of education in our field. And done so much. And thank you for your service as well. And still doing so much. You are very active. You're very active on social. You're an amazing um, leader, a mentor, uh, educator. And um, just briefly, you have a local nurse practitioner organization there in South Carolina. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So Capital Nurse Practitioner Group, I'm the co-founder and currently executive director of this organization. I helped form the, a fully formed executive board with a president, vice president, treasurer, and secretary. And then we started to form committees, particularly the legislative committee, social media, community service. And unexpectedly, we blew up. We went from eight members to 200 plus members. It got to the point where our, we actually had to create a wait list for our meetings because we used to have so many people come to our meetings. So it has been a t- tremendous success and great impact. We're trying to move forward to focus more on legislative issues because a lot of we're finding out a lot of nurse practitioners locally don't understand the importance of health policy. So that's what we're focusing on, trying to build our legislative committee. You can see we're active at, at Lobby Day recently, and we're trying to also focus on students. So we have a symposium coming up in September. We had a successful one last year. So we want to continue to be that beacon in the community in Columbia, South Carolina for nurse practitioners. You've just done a fantastic job. And I've also seen that you're very active with the DNPs of Color organization, um, another fantastic uh, group that's growing uh, rapidly. And you've done a lot of great work just to help build that up uh, in partnership with Dr. Danielle McCamey. So you're very active in, in AAMP as well. You're a frequent speaker. You're on lots of different thought groups. Um, and you're very active with our Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. So tell us a little bit about that committee. Yes, yeah, so I said that committee is highly professional nurses from different backgrounds within, and mm-hmm. very diverse, highly educated, experienced these group of people, they have such different ideas and they have great ways to make an impact 
on diversity within the nurse practitioner field. They touched on things I never thought of and could imagine that needs to be built up on because my primary focus is on minority students within the nursing school, but I'm seeing stuff from the academic standpoint. I'm seeing stuff from the um, hospital standpoint, from producing journal standpoint, health equities, inequities, all kinds of things. So it's a great experience from, especially how you can make an impact on a national level. So I've been connected with such high level people that, that motivate me and inspire me to do more in my position. So when I got on a committee, I, I thought I was doing well, but I said, I'm not doing enough. I need to step up my game with all these <laughs> These people are trying to do a lot. I think this is a very important committee. I think it will also bring more minority nurse practitioners and draw them to AMP. Understand that we'll, we have their back. We recognize certain issues, especially when we're doing specific comprehensive surveys to determine gaps in diversity. That's really impressive that we're actually looking at things and coming up with an actual action plan to solve the issues help those that don't feel represented or feel still feel marginalized. It's not just a buzzword to make you guys sound good. It's actually, there's actually action and work behind the stance of improvement DEI. Well, it's definitely due to very talented leaders like you. And I would imagine everyone on the committee is just uh, says much of the same about you. And you bring such a, a wonderful perspective and so you brought up some big things there. So no question that we've got issues with workforce. Uh, no question uh, that we have a tremendous issues in terms of healthcare disparities today. But I really honed in on what you talked about in terms of diversifying our workforce, specifically when we start to talk about nursing and, and, and nurse practitioners. And so this is a focus of yours, I understand, and, that, and that's really minority recruitment and retention of students in nursing schools. So tell us a little bit more about that. So one of the first things we do is have to recognize the importance. Why do we have to diversify the nursing profession? Because anyone can say, yeah, diversify, make sure there's enough brown or black people in the profession, but there's more to it because as a nurse practitioner, I've seen the impacts patient care. I can use myself as an example of many times. Okay. I had to use myself as I use the term black patient whisperer where I was working with uh, um, some of my physician colleagues and there was a family member that had an issue with extremity weakness and paralysis or paresthesias. And this person was not getting better. The family is getting very anxious and angry and just kept pulling me to the bedside and saying, you don't know what you're doing. We need to go somewhere else. So after my provider left, I came back to that patient and said, hey, I'm going to tell you from this standpoint. And this is from a cultural perspective, as I understand from being from African-American community, how we like to be talked to. A lot of African-Americans will say, they always sugarcoat everything. We don't mm -hmm. like that. We think I like to hit a real deal. So I told them, this is the real deal. This is what's going on. This is going to happen. This is how you're going to, I'm going to get you out. And then he's like, thank you. They were jumping up and down in so much joy. And that patient actually got discharged a week later and was able to get better. So this is where I truly see where diversity is necessary. Also, the biggest thing about diversity in the workforce is communication. Understanding mm -hmm. certain cultural traditions that you cannot necessarily read from your book. I, I did not pick up a book and say how to talk to African-American patients. I just knew certain trends and certain vibes from being within that community. So I was able to talk to them naturally. 
Right. And it establishes that patient-provider rapport, that trust. A lot of African-American patients don't trust their white physicians. I had to actually go on phone calls with the physician. They'll call me and said, I have my friend that's a nurse practitioner. I want him on the call as well and listen to them talk because they didn't trust them. And then I had to explain to them, was even on some reasons, the patients and their families misunderstood the physician, but they, the trust wasn't there. So everything that came out their mouth, even though it was correct from their physician, they did not trust until they heard it from me. I told them the same thing that the white physician said, but because it came from me in a different manner, they were put at ease. You can say the same information, but if you say it differently, it makes a difference. It's all the difference. So, so you got really focused on how do we get more people interested in nursing? How do we recruit more into nursing programs and keep them in nursing programs? Because we know retention can be an issue too. One of the things I'm part of the business committee with and where we all different industries come and meet. They meet every quarter or so, and they talk about ways to encourage the high school youth. So I was, as a result of that meeting, I was invited to a high school class to talk about the nursing profession and the kids. It was wonderful. I talked to two sets of students. The questions, they were actually very interesting how they were focusing on how can I be a nurse? What, what are the challenges? What should I look out for? And I was kind of telling them my experience as an African-American male, because most of them are minority students. And I was telling them my experience of how you need to study, how you need to focus and prioritize things because it'll be worth it in the end. And I tell them it's, it's not going to be easy. You will cry. <laughs> you will want to give up, but keep pressing because once you get that reach to your goal, you'll, you'll see it's all worth it. So they were all coming up to me. They had great plans and goals. I want to do this. I'm going to be a doctorate of nursing like you. I'm going to be a, a woman's health professor and I'm going to do all this stuff. So all these help motivate and just them to see me in my position. And of course they ask about money. I say, yeah, you make good money. <laughs> but just, just kind of showing and being there and showing them, yes, is I'm not going to be a stiff, rigid person. I'm still like to have fun and it's well worth the while to um, commit to a, a health profession such as nursing because you learn so much and you have so many opportunities to move around and do different things. If you're tied in one position, you can move to the next position. So that's how I reach out to the community directly, especially those in the high school level. Um, that's a good way to get more minority recruitment. So you brought up a good point, and we didn't mention this earlier, but for our audience, uh, Dwayne, you are faculty and you teach uh, nurse practitioner students and guide them through the process. And so there's so, so you talk to the high school high schoolers and talk to them about being a nurse and, and all of the opportunities such as being a nurse practitioner. Um, is, and you talked about you know ultimate salary and things like that, but can um, loans and the application process and those types of things, the tuition, can that be a barrier? Yes, yeah, so financial barriers are significant because especially depending on the school you go to. You can tell some families are a little bit more well-off and some students barely have access to computers or they can't buy their books. You mostly see this on the undergrad. So we keep our old books and give it to them. We send out, we do a survey and say, you know, do you need financial assistance? And they have to have one of these things called these eye clickers and they cost $70 and that could be not a big deal for some folks. $70 can go a long way for some families. So mm -hmm. we, we actually provide some extra stuff. This past year, we were able to contact the bookseller and say, hey, 
we we got you a lot of sales. Can you give us some free access? Because the book is available online. We were able to get about five free access logins for students, for those that couldn't afford books. So we recognize that finance is a problem and it can impact overall student success. So that's a big issue that needs to be addressed. And you make those connections because you know about loan forgiveness programs. You know about where to apply for faculty loans and scholarships and grants and different programs so that you can get through school. Yeah, a lot of nursing programs has a lot of finance grants. And through our faculty meetings, we always keep up to date on that. So we always let them be aware of these various opportunities for our financial assistance, and we share it with these students. Now, is retention an issue? Do you find that students at some point can't go any longer and they drop out? I mean, that seems like quite a phenomenon once you've already entered and invested into the program. Yes. So I'm glad you mentioned that. So retention is an issue and I've been trying to truly dig into the, the reason behind it. And there's minority students, especially un, in undergrad that rarely come to my office house. So those that do, I pull them aside and say, hey, what's going on? This is the first time you came. Why haven't you came before? A lot of them feel less than because they have to ask for help. They don't feel like they're good enough or they feel embarrassed that they have to ask for help. So one of the things that I try to do is empower them. If they fail, they feel miserable, like they're the lowest of the low. I said, it's okay to fail as long as you take the next step in order to improve. So I try to provide them opportunities for leadership, help them feel included, tell them, hey, they did well in the next exam and say, you did well, that's good. You you. You're making progress. You scored this on this exam, but you scored about 20 points higher on the next exam. So you are making progress. But once they feel empowered, they may be encouraged to stay. Also try to be a mentor, but that's very limited because when you have a class of 400 students, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's hard to be a mentor because every student would want me to mentor them. So that would, one thing would be bias and not fair, and also it would be overwhelm me. So I think having mentorship programs outside of the institution would help those are like former nursing students or people that are currently working in the nursing profession. If they, we can develop a nice mentorship program to help encourage these students, especially when they at their lowest points because they failed their first exam. That's one of the biggest challenges when they fail the exam, they feel lowest than the lowest and they feel like they can't do I had students say, I feel dumb. So why do you feel dumb? Because I failed the exam. I said, what are you going to do about it? And all they asked me, can I still be a nurse? And I asked them, do you want to be a nurse? They said, yes. And then be a nurse. You're going to fall down, but get back up. And I told them my story, how I failed multiple times and look at me now because I did not give up. So yes, you're just going to be delayed, but not denied. As long as you want to be a nurse, be a nurse. And they just smile <laughs> and move on. So, so that's why I noticed with recruitment, they, the main thing is they get discouraged and just want to give up because they fail one time. And I always tell them failure is the, the opening to success. It is. Whenever I see you, you always have several people around you, usually students. You're such an amazing example and a mentor. So in your program and in, in nursing schools today, and this was in the Future of Nursing Report 2020 30, it was on every single page, is every recommendation, just really highlighted the importance of learning and understanding this concept of social determinants of health. And I know it sounds like we're completely jumping to another subject, but it, it ties together. So tell me, as if I was one of your students, a little bit more about what that is and what that really means. So that's a good one because social determinants of health is something that I looked into when I was working on my doctorate program and actually nursing first because I actually kind of looked at certain things that impact overall healthcare. So usually when you look at conditions, there's certain conditions where people are born or where they grow, live, work, 
and those specific factors impact their healthcare and living. So that includes income, employment, the number, level of education, whether they have a ride to back and forth to where they need to be. That plays a big role. And also the type of support. Do they have social support? So some mm -hmm. people grew up in single family homes, some single parent homes. They don't have somebody to help them with their kids. So that becomes a social determinant of health. And when it comes to healthcare, you just can't give medicines. You have to kind of assess local region to see what are those social determinant of health. A lot of times it's common in certain areas. So this is the only way to help promote health equity. So if you have a, like, for example, if you have a neighborhood where there's a lack of stores, the nearest store or with healthy food is about 20 miles away and the closest store is like a dollar store with all um, nothing but junk food or food that's not generally healthy or lack of nutritional value. And you, that population, because you see a higher population of diabetes, kidney disease, heart disease. So you have to kind of look at that and say, how can we get these this population specifically some better nutritional choices or ways to live healthy lifestyles and stuff like that? I also see it when I work in my patients in the hospital, patients from certain areas, they keep coming back. I said, why do you keep coming back? At first, I was very judgmental and saying, this person keeps coming back. They don't care about their health. Then I kind of started digging into things. And this one patient, their family member refuses to take them to their appointment, refuses to take them to get their medicine, refuses to report if something's going on. So I realized it's the only chance this patient had to get them care is by just showing up at the ER. And that's because they did not have that social support. When that was the last time I saw this patient come in, I asked, contacted the social worker and I set up appointments so this person can get to where they need to be. And then after a while, they did not show up in the hospital for quite some time. That's really, you just pointed out one of the beauties of being a nurse practitioner is just that we are very focused on better understanding the social context because we know that impacts their engagement with their own health care. And there's a lot of different aspects to all of this. There's also this concept of bias. And oftentimes we don't talk about it, but it needs to be talked about. And bias comes into play in our healthcare system today significantly. What are your thoughts uh, on that and how it impacts healthcare disparities? Well, I can say bias robs people of the healthcare that they need, especially there's different types of biases. We tend to bias people based on their race and then even deeper than that, based on their economic status. So if you look at their clothes, say, okay, this person is just poor, so they don't, they're not going to understand or they don't deserve a certain type of care because they won't be able to afford it anyway. And then those that may be overweight, I see that a lot. They get treated differently. And then language, if they don't speak your language, you correlate that with intelligence. So bias does exist. I've actually seen it. I actually experienced it with my wife. When my wife had a miscarriage, um, I brought her into the hospital, but she had a lot of pain. The ER physician started talking to her like she was just somebody off the street, say, what's your name? You know, where, where you live? Where would I, what do you do? And my wife is a lawyer. So as soon as he mentioned she was a lawyer, his whole demeanor changed. Everything started moving quickly. But before then it was like, whatever, you just bothering me. So that was an example of bias. Was that I think they they assume this is just some black woman that just had a baby, and we just have to deal with it. And they just in my ER giving me too much work. That's the attitude I got from that yeah. bias. But as soon as he said lawyer, everything changed. Everyone, everything worked smoothly. The physician checked on her frequently and asked if everything's okay. The attitude completely was erased. So I've personally seen it, and I've seen it. The attitudes of providers towards other patients, or even when we talk offline, how they talk about them, or this person doesn't even speak English, and they're just making assumptions based on their language and their appearance. 
So that does impact care, but you will not put in the effort you need to find out what's going on. You will not put in the effort to ask certain questions or give them the benefit of the doubt of their complaint. It would negatively impact their care, especially if you have an implicit bias. Implicit bias is one of the biggest things because we don't see it. We kind of generally think how we think is fine, as long as it's not direct. So this is how I think, and this is how it is when you have to understand and see it from a different viewpoint. That was a very personal and very powerful story that you just shared in terms of bias. And it's just like you just said, that there are many providers, nurse practitioners included, not just physicians, many members of the healthcare team that might say exactly that. That would never happen with me. I don't have that problem. But there is so much evidence out there that implicit bias, unconscious bias, whatever you want to term it, but that it's very real and there are significant disparities in diagnostics, in testing and treatment. Yes. And I can say another example is I had a young man, this was kind of age bias, young man that kept complaining of chest pain, kept coming back. They said, no, he's too young. Let's send him home. Came back a third time. So I had to stand up for this young man. He ended up being sent to the hospital, had 90% blockage in his LAD. And they just, just blowing him off because he was young and said, no, he's he's lying. 90% blockage in the LED had to end up having a cabbage. So that's how bias can impact here. I took time and listened to the patient. I went to the cardiologist and said, listen, this is, this is what they're saying. We sent him back home for the third time. He's back again. He's having these symptoms. So let's do something. And they sent him to another hospital. But sometimes you have to take the step. And one of the things I forgot to mention is you have to realize your own biases. All of us have our biases. So I, re I recognize them and I have biases and I have to stop and think and say, okay, recognize the bias before I go into this room. Because a lot of times it's common with drug seekers when we have people that have asked for meds. I came in the room with the bias, oh, that person want pain meds. And when I talk to them, it's something completely different. So that's one of the things I have to do is remove the bias from my own head and so I can give the patient proper care. First of all, the fact that somebody had 90% blockage could have had a massive MI and, and died at any moment. So, wow, that was perseverance, making sure that that patient got care, the right care. But yeah, so that's the thing, is understanding that we have these biases, different experiences, backgrounds, cultures, etc., and that we have to take pause and really stop for a moment and, and say, okay, what is this lens and how do I remove that so that I can make sure that this person gets the very best care? So when we're starting to talk about patient care, let's talk a little bit about, because you mentioned earlier having a conversation with a patient and really understanding their specific needs and how to establish that relationship. This is really important when we start talking about patient education, because it's not a matter of, oh, here's what's wrong. Here's a prescription. See you later. It's, it, there is so much more to it. Tell us a little bit about patient education, especially in minority communities. So patient communication is number one, and this kind of ties in with the biases. One of the things I see and that drives me crazy is providers assume the patient understands what's going on. So they assume that they're giving them medicine and they say, do you understand? And just because the patient says yes, <laughs> doesn't mean they understand. So that's one of the things I see, especially with communities of color, the provider assumes just because they ask one question that a patient understands. And I'm always fixing that void. And that kind of builds the frustration and lack of trust with the communities of color. I can give an example of, I had a patient that came in with um, dementia 
the family did not even know the family member had dementia. They their provider told them their loved one was just confused. And so the family was angry. They were coming in yelling at me all the time, yelling at all the nurses. Because I was kind of telling them there's nothing acutely wrong, but this patient has dementia. No, they don't. They they don't have dementia. I never heard that. I said, so what I did is started looking at their medicines. And since I teach about dementia to my students, one of the things I read about recently was the stepwise approach to treating dementia. So usually start them on a anticholinesterase inhibitor. And then if they are, if it becomes more serious, you add memantine. So I explained to them, your mother was on, is on this medicine. And I think it was Donazepil. And she's also on memantine. That usually tells me that it was more serious. So what happened after your mother was started on Donazepil? What did they tell you? When they put on memantine, oh, they said this will make her better. So in other words, the provider didn't tell you that your mother had dementia and did not make it worse. No, they never did that. And so I explained to them why we would advance medicine. They're like, oh, thank God. They were so happy and joyous. And when I educated them on the stepwise approach of just managing dementia and why your mother has severe dementia, and they were fine and happy. And so something simple like that. So every time I talk to a patient, I always verify, do you understand? I make them repeat what I just said. And then if any family members are in the room, I go to them and say, do you have any questions? So that's what I do. Another issue is with education communities of color is they have lack of, of access to general educational opportunities, because it's not just not there. And a lot, of, a lot of communities of color, some of them may be very isolated. So you have to go there and offer that education. A lot of, I take advantage of a lot of avenues like churches or local groups that, that frequent certain areas of the community, like little local shops, especially barbershops, hair shops. Those are good areas to frequent to kind of provide people with education or the opportunities to learn more about diabetes, to learn more about chronic kidney disease to learn more about high blood pressure. And especially with the new age of online Zoom and Teams, that also gives them an opportunity to, they don't have to leave their home, but you can give them education. Because I've done a plenty of educational talks and these people from the communities, I send them the link and they join it and they, they contact me and say, I never knew all about this, something simple about diabetes or something simple about high blood pressure. I'm going to change my diet. Now I understand why this, my doctor gives me this medicine. You explained it further. So they're not getting the education. They're just saying, this medicine, this is your medicine, just take it. It's going to help lower your, your blood pressure. Or this is going to lower your cholesterol. They don't get the full explanation behind it. And once they do right. it, they, it makes them more committed to being compliant with the medicine and committed to their health. So this is why education is very important, especially in communities, minority communities. I'm noticing that when I do different sessions within those communities. Now, Dwayne, we were talking about this podcast. There was one more topic that we wanted to make sure that we talked about, and that was common misconceptions that African-American men have about general health care. So tell us a little bit about that specific population. So me being an African-American male, <laughs> mm -hmm. and I generally stay healthy. Some of those of you that know me, I don't yeah, eat Yeah, you're foods. very healthy. Mm -hmm. I like to work out. One of the things I've noticed, um, besides I, when I at my church, I work with a, someone that's a dentist. He and I, we have a men's outing where we go away from our wives and our girlfriends and, and meet as men. And he tell you, hey, let's get together. Let's talk about healthcare for men. Let's do a health talk. Sure. And I kind of talk about stuff. And the, the ages range from late 20s to the late 70s. So I asked a simple question to all the Black men. I said, how many of you seen that's 30 or over been to your doctor and only one person raised a hand. There was about 60 
men in the room. So none of them would go to the doctor. Wow. Um, so that's one wow. of the common misconceptions that seeking medical care is a sign of weakness. They have to be tough. So they'll avoid seeking care until they, their symptoms become very severe. And that's why we get a lot of Black men that come in with diabetes. They get their first diagnosis when they're in DKA or HHS. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. And I ask them, why you didn't come? Do you go to the doctor? No, no, I didn't go until, uh, and I was going to the bathroom a lot. I was thirsty. So that's a kind of reception. They just feel like they have to tough it out. I don't need to go because I'm healthy. So that's that's all the conception. All the issues is that they have issues with their providers. They feel like their providers don't understand them culturally. So if they mm -hmm. see a provider of another race, they may, they may not understand their needs and they don't talk to them in a way they don't understand or talk at their level. So they, they believe so they feel like they're not getting a lot of the adequate care. So they say, I'm not going to, why bother? They give me the, all they want to do is serve medicine in my face. They just want to take my money and do all these unnecessary procedures. So if they feel that way, they're not going to get care. Yeah. And then sometimes they feel healthy um, just because you don't have symptoms. I can tell you, <laughs> I've been going to my physician regularly since I was 20. And I would have never discovered I had severely high cholesterol levels. My cholesterol levels as high as 400. I felt fine. I didn't have mm -hmm. any issues. And I had to get, and I'm on medicine. Turns out I have familial hypercholesteremia. So I have to take medicine. No matter how healthy I eat, my cholesterol levels will shoot up. If I did not go for a routine checkup and have my labs checked, I probably would have had a stroke by now. So stuff like that, routine checkup, I try to encourage for the black men, just because you don't have symptoms, just because your workup is fine. The first year, keep continuing to go annually and then go more frequently if you have problems or there's some abnormalities that may not require immediate treatment, but you should go because you never know. So important, so important to to understand different uh, populations and perspectives. And I feel like we could have a whole separate podcast where we talk about men's health. This dialogue could go on for days because it's so important and there's so many aspects well, Dwayne, I have just so appreciated our time together and being able to talk to you today. And I know our audience will love to hear our podcast and hear your wisdom and your wise words today. So anything you'd like to share before we wrap up? I just appreciate this time and, I, and I'm always like to be someone that's providing education for the community. Um, I like to be an example to those in the health field and I like to be an example to minority nurses in the health field to encourage excellence in nursing and let you know that the the road or the journey may be rough, but it's all about the destination. So just keep pushing whatever goals you have, pushing for the prize and you will get there. So that's the one to say. Excellent. Excellent advice from Dr. Dwayne Aline. If you want to know more about him, look him up. He's on social media. Uh, and he uh, keeps us updated on everything that's going on in healthcare and, and with our profession. So uh, great to talk to you today. Have a wonderful day. You Thank too. you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us, Dwayne. And thank you to all who are listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please join me on April 19th for another Minority Health Month podcast episode featuring AANP Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee member, Dr. Charles Bushimi. I'm looking forward to hearing his perspective on the importance of health equity and ways we, as nurse practitioners, can best support our patients. 
If you'd like to get more involved in AANP and partner with other members on issues related to health equity, please consider joining the AANP Health Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Community. From articles on the AANP newsfeed to continuing education activities in the AANP CE Center, AANP offers a variety of resources to help you address social determinants of health and improve health equity in your community. Finally, I hope to see you at the 2023 AANP National Conference in New Orleans in June, June 20th through 25th, where former NASA astronaut Joan Higginbotham will inspire attendees to break through barriers and take their practices to new heights. With more than 330 live CE sessions and hands-on workshops and 80 more pre-recorded on-demand sessions, this is an event that you don't want to miss. Thank you for listening to NP Pulse. Please subscribe to this podcast, share it with your colleagues, and check back regularly for new episodes. And as always, be kind, be safe, be effective, and be the voice of the nurse practitioner. Mm-hmm.